0: This is the Employee Experience in Education podcast, the teacher retention podcast for school leaders, and I'm your host, Eric Brainstetter. In this podcast, we'll speak with educational leaders, former educators, and industry experts to better understand the employee experience in education. Our goal is to equip school leaders with realistic and actionable strategies to keep more teachers in the classroom. On this episode, we'll speak with Craig Randall, former counselor, administrator, college basketball coach, and author of the book, Trust-Based Observations. Today, Craig will share his transformational approach to teacher observations that actually builds trust and risk-taking. He will also share the nine elements of instruction he looks for when completing observations, the process behind trust-based observations, and why administrators across the world are calling trust-based observations the best training they've ever had. Hey Craig, thanks so much for your time today. You know, I'm really passionate about helping school leaders build this community of trust, this positive school culture in their schools. And I can't wait to hear how you help schools with this as well. But before we get to that, can you talk a little bit about your history and why you decided to become an educator?
1: Uh, <laughs> that's a good question. Why I think I graduated from college and didn't know what the hell I wanted to do and 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 uh I went and watched my uncle who was an elementary school counselor one day in that kind of lost phase. And I was like, Oh, I love it. And so I I started out, I got my master's in in guidance and counseling and ed, and and I was an elementary school counselor for seven years. And then my last year as a counselor, I actually went over and I worked in a middle school and it was a self-contained behavior class. And I was actually in the classroom every day, kind of functioning in that role. And uh, middle schoolers, all but one had been adjudicated already, and and oh, swearing all the time, trying to get reactions, and literally had to do physical restraint every day. It was a different era with that, but uh, and then we coach as we do in the U.S. And uh, I coached basketball, and I had a chance to take a. It's still an education, I think, but a fairly fairly major detour. And I ended up coaching small college basketball for seven years, three years as a, an assistant coach at Division three, and four years at a junior college. And then uh, my wife and I had always talked not from our very first date about international school teaching. And we were nearing 40 and thought, if we don't do it now, we'll never do it, which I don't know if that's true, but that was our thought. And so we ended up going to a job fair in freezing northern Iowa. And uh, we got a job at the American School of Warsaw. And I taught PE and health and my wife, uh, we all went there as a family. Our kids were in kindergarten. And then when I was there, one of the principals said, Craig, you ought to get into administration. My first thought was the dark side, never. But then I, afterwards, I was a little flattered, and I thought maybe I should and So I started my program in the summers, and that's where I met my mentor. And without him, trust-based wouldn't be here, Warren Aller. And I remember in his supervision class, and I was frustrated with observation, even in the best case scenario. I was in the middle of two years of not being uh, observed at all, which is more common than you might think. But even in the best case scenario, it just felt so infrequent. And I would talk to people, and everyone would just say, "Yeah, but what do you do? That's the system." But the first day in Warren's class, he said, "You need to be in classes every day. You need to be observing teachers. You need be, need to be supporting them. You need to be asking about what they're doing to help students learn and and just help them grow and get better." And it was just this. I just remember just like my insides just giddy, like it wasn't just me. Somebody else thought the same way. And so then I got my first assistant principal job uh, in Korea at an international school there. And I got really lucky. My principal was uh, at the point in his career where mentoring somebody young and passionate was what really drove him. I wasn't young, but I was super passionate. I told him I had this crazy idea about doing observations because we practiced, I guess it should say, in his class all the time. And we would bring many lessons, and then we would have reflective conversations. And so by the time I got out there, I was ready to go. Like I had super experienced, a ton of experience and was super confident. And so I told him what I wanted to do. And he said, great, let's do it. We did it together. Teachers responded overwhelmingly positively to it. We can maybe talk more about that later. Um, And then that basically led to uh, principal jobs uh, at other places in the Middle East. And then uh, in Brazil, where the head teacher asked me to show the other principals what I was doing. And maybe about three months in, the elementary principal said, Craig, you need to protect your work. And I was completely naive and didn't know what he was talking about. And he's like, no, this, what you're doing, this is your work. It's like, it's yours. You need to protect it. And I was really flattered. And I thought, "Wow, well, maybe I should present at a conference. I did. It went really well. I thought maybe I should write an article. I got published right away, uh, ended up coming home, had a little money saved up from overseas. Uh went to a coffee shop Monday through Friday as a regular job and wrote a book and came out delayed because of COVID. And really since the twenty one twenty two, 22, is, life's gotten slowly back to normal. I've been out training schools.
0: All over the world, right?
1: Literally all over the world. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So I want to start with a pretty basic question. Who, who should be paying attention today to what you're sharing? What, what kind of an administrator should really pay attention to the information you're sharing about trust-based observations?
1: I think I have two answers to that, any and every administrator, Uh, because what we're doing right now isn't working. The the research shows that it's not improving teaching and learning. And I'm going to share two studies real quick because I think it's important. Uh, In 2018, the Measures of Effective Teaching, which is the Gates Foundation study, seven years, $575 million to improve One, the quality of teaching, two, student learning outcomes, three, graduation rates through the development of a more robust teaching evaluation process, which in six of the seven districts they did, it was literally using Danielson with absolute fidelity. And the results were, and I quote, no sustained improvement. And so I will just say, as a side, when you're writing a book about a new way to do teacher observations and something like that comes out, it's super exciting. <laughs> and I know everyone is well intended. Maybe that sounds fatty, but it's true. And so then a year ago, last November, uh, Education Week had an article referencing an Annenberg study, and it was a nine-year meta study of all teacher evaluation efforts between 2009 and 2017. And the results were, again, in quotations, no improvement. So what we've been doing isn't working. So Anybody who knows that what we're doing or doesn't even know, but now knows, then let's try something else. Um, And I'll say just particularly those who like, who have compassion and empathy, and I don't want to offend anybody, but like, if you're a grumpy old curmudgeon, I don't want you doing trust face observations. So everybody, but them.
0: Sure. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. So you you see a lot of, of different practices, talk to a lot of different people, What's kind of the norm right now for observation? So traditional evaluations aren't working for the research. How would you define a traditional observation evaluation process?
1: You know, it's pretty similar all over the world. I mean, I, when I'm all over, over the world, I'm in international schools or in the UK mostly. So those are still more Western based. That's for sure. So just to be clear on that, uh, it's still the same. It, it, it's infrequent it's sometimes it's a little more frequent. Uh, Sometimes there's some informal mixed in with formal. There's definitely rubrics where we have to rate you. And I'm just going to add another piece of research. Matt O'Leary out of the UK, who to me is the predominant researcher on observation, evaluation in in the world. His research says that as soon as we start to evaluatively rate teachers, he means pedagogy when he says that, the following things happens. Observer, and observe your teacher lose relational trust. And with that loss of relational trust, the teacher ends up tending to play it safe in their practice, which results in less risk-taking and innovation in practice. If we don't feel comfortable trying new things, we will never get better. So I will say that permeates, it's that model. And it's, it's amazing when you do, when we're out training schools every week, we go through this completely different process, which I know we'll get into later. And in the reflective conversation, you can see fairly commonly at the end, the teacher's kind of looking quizzically like, yeah, okay, but, but what do I need to get better at? And and because they're so used to like, what are your next steps? Like every time you have to tell you something better. And, and so that's really the model. And I will just say this, whenever we're rating, whenever we're telling somebody every single time they have to get better at something, they don't hear anything positive we're saying, no matter how well intended, no matter what great social and emotional intelligence, emotional intelligence, care, compassion we sh- we share when we do have these conversations with teachers. They don't hear it because all they're thinking is about what's coming next and it's not working. So really that model is pretty much the same. It permeates different variants of it, but nothing's different.
0: Yeah. I, I think I've shared this story on the podcast before, but I remember a, a teacher observation just a wonderful teacher, just you know, positive. I call her a ray a ray of sunshine. In the post-observation conference, she said, Eric, I don't remember anything that happened during the observation. It's like I blacked out. I was on autopilot. And if I if I think back and reflect as to what the process was, it's what you're describing. I had, I don't know, twenty-seven to thirty-two different elements I was looking for and trying to match, and I was scripting everything and I remember sitting in the classroom for 40 minutes. 40 minutes was the minimum, so more like 45. So I could say I was doing more than the minimum. And then I'd go home and I'd I'd read over my scripting and I'd match it with the framework elements. So another 40 to 45 minutes. So I'm looking at 90 minutes already of an observation. And then I sit down and I'd say, "Hey, you know, how how do you think the lesson went?" I don't I have no idea. I don't remember anything that happened. So how effective is that if the teacher's experience is it's this high pressure. I'm getting evaluated. You're coming into my classroom maybe twice or three times for an entire year. I spend five hours a day teaching. You come in for 90 minutes total throughout the year, and I'm getting evaluated. Like it's, it just doesn't work.
1: It, it's actually amazing. I, I've, I've been doing a, a pulling together some of the history that I'd created for the book, which didn't end up in the book. And since the late sixties, people over and over and over again have been cautioning about separating evaluation for retention from supervision for growth. Like in the late sixties, the clinical model, the pre-observation observation post-observation conference that still permeates today. They were saying that then. Uh, in After A Nation came out, at Risk came out in 1983, they commissioned a report that was studying evaluation so they could see what worked. They posed the question, the RAND Corporation went in the study. Can one tool serve both purposes? Their answer was no. Danielson when her first thing came out said I know these are in opposition to each other but we should do them anyway strong in 2003 I know that they they don't work but we need to find a way to make them work anyway it's like it makes no sense to me for 50 years over 50 years people have been saying let's not do them together or I know we shouldn't but let's do it anyway and it's like but the results are saying they're not so and your example with that teacher it's like it doesn't work it doesn't build trust it doesn't build faith we have We have to create conditions so it's safe enough for teachers to feel comfortable trying new things. It's that simple.
0: So why why are we still doing this after 50 years? Why is that the traditional model still? Is that just what's been done? That's the expectation? Is that because... So most admins used to be teachers, obviously. That's what was done to them, so that's what they understand?
1: I mean, it's like teaching, right? Sometimes we teach the way we taught. So it's like when I go in and see Rose, it makes me cringe. and, And it's like... But because that's what they grew up with, right? And so especially old people like me. And so I think that's part of it. But I think also you come in and that's the expectation. This is what we do here. We do Danielson. We do Marzano. We do self 5D. We do whatever. This is what we do. But even more than that, since No Child Left Behind really it started with a nation at risk, it started these mandates that we started doing this. But with No Child Left Behind, it's become law in many states that you have to do it this way. So so if that's the law, what am I supposed to do? In my state, you're only allowed to do Marzano, Danielson, or Self 5D. Like you can't even try right now in a public school to do trust-based observations. We're trying to get them to alter the law to at least allow pilots. Like Colorado at least allows pilot projects to see something different. So a lot of times it's out of teachers' hands too. I mean, principals, leaders, school leaders' hands.
0: And I talk to a lot of leaders from across the nation and beyond about teacher observations. What I find incredible... so. A lot of smaller private schools, public schools that are really small, there's a a decent amount of turnover oftentimes in those principals. And I'll sit down with the principal and they'll ask, So how Eric, how do I do teacher evaluations? What what's best practice? And I'll say, Well, what you know, what have you been doing? What are your thoughts? And there's kind of this blank look oftentimes of I don't really know what I should be doing. And then the opposite of that, which I find I find this fascinating too, there are so many large districts that every school can kind of make a choice of how they do evaluations from the form to the process. And I'm from a district where it was very regimented. It was union approved, collective bargaining, you know, went through that process. So everybody had to do the same. So the land, there's just so much that's out there for teacher evaluations with what people are doing. And I think to your point, most administrators, school leaders know it's not working, but they don't really know what else to do.
1: I mean, it's not uncommon when people reach out. To say, I knew I didn't like what was there before. And now that I see trust-based observation, it makes sense. And so it's transformatively different. I mean, you read the book, you know it. It's transformatively different. in in terms of everything, the frequency, what the reflective conversations are about. It's about them. It's not about us. It's the elimination of pedagogy. So a lot of times people haven't had an alternative tool to know what to do. And this gives you one.
0: Yeah. And you and I spoke right before we hit record today. And I mentioned to you, I wish as an administrator, I had this resource because it would have changed how I approach observations, approach feedback. So let's start with when people think about teacher evaluations, there's two kind of big components to it that I hear. One is the form. What's the form? What should I be looking for? The other is the process. What's the process look like? I'd love to dig in and talk about the TBO form, right? Because we just talked about how rubrics to have, what, 76 indicators at times and trying to be able to measure 76 indicators, you talk about what a form looks like in the TBO process.
1: Yeah. So I'm going to say the first thing is research that I've read says if there's any more than 10 indicators on an observation template, that as observers, we tend to lose the forest through the trees and we don't see the craft and art of teaching. We only, it becomes an exercise and tick box and teaching is craft and art. So we have to, we have to see that. So we have nine areas of pedagogy on it. it, it I didn't leave it at nine on purpose. It just it's what we ended up at. I'd like, I I just have to open up that. I never thought, aha, I know what the problem with observations are and I'm going to fix it. This just developed organically and it happens to address the problem. So I'm not that smart, but the nine areas also, because it does allow us to add a 10th area. And we've had numerous schools that we've worked with that are special needs schools and they have like three maybe three teaching assistants in each classroom. And many of those have added a 10th area that is effective use of teaching instructors or whatever. Or or sometimes we've done some Catholic schools and they've added a 10th area related to Catholic values. So a nice little bonus is it does allow you to add some flexibility. But it's just solid areas of practice. It's Learning targets, all the different areas that, and I know some people are inquiry based, but you can change it to essential questions or whatever. It doesn't have to be a target. It, it has the flexibility to do that. It has classroom relationship, a just solid basic stuff. Nothing is rocket science here because uh, relationships are vital. It has management. If I can't manage my class, nothing else is going to happen. It has uh, cooperative learning. I'm a huge cooperative learning fan. Kagan cooperative learning to me is amazing. I know there are no panaceas, but that's about as close as you can get to me. Um, It has working memory, cognitive load, which is just us being really cognizant of what's the cognitive load of my class as a whole and purposely now stopping and building in little mini reflection and processing activities to get things into from working memory into long-term memory or to process what my next steps might be. It has questioning because we always ask questions, right? That's a higher order thinking skills. And it has formative assessment, descriptive progress, feedback, and differentiation. That's it. But the form is super, I know you've seen it. It's super specific. It has all these tables on it, uh, a couple of little pyramids. And when you first look at it, it's daunting, I know. But once you get it into practice and you work on it, or certainly through a training when you're working on it, it becomes, you become proficient really, really quickly. And the form, the way it's written is so specific that what we write is really, really specific. And because we're writing super specific, it means more to teachers when we share it in the reflective conversation. And I'll just share. After we finish a reflective conversation, we always ask teachers, now that you've had a round of trust-based observations, what do you think? Whether you want to compare it to other models or not is up to you, but what do you think? One of the most common things that we hear teachers say is, you know, before when I had a good observation, and this is maybe a primary example, but they'd say, oh, that was great. Like your relationships are off the charts. You're super engaging. Behavior management was good. Keep it up. I love it. And they'd say they always appreciated that. Now we might say, so under formative assessment, I had teacher led. It was clearly planned for, and it was a combination of observations, conversations, and artifacts of learning as you were circulating the room when the kids were working on their project. And they will say, and I'm happy to throw in praise words along with that, but even without the praise words, they'll say that means way more to them than getting the other because it's so specific and it gets them to start thinking about other areas of practice. So on formative assessment, for example, it also lists uh, peer to peer and student self assessment. So even though we're talking about, we, we saw, and we always say absence of is not a negative because those other areas are on there. They just automatically on their own. Cause the other thing they do regularly say is I'm already thinking about what to get better at in other areas without you even saying anything. So that happens. It's manageable like that. And then the other thing about the form that I think is really uh, a game changer, I believe is, is that it's, it's, a professional doubles as a professional development resource tool. So under each one of the nine categories, we have the word toolbox possibilities and a list of strategies that fall into that category for relationships or management or whatever. It's not an an unabridged list, but it's certainly a super thorough list. If you click on toolbox possibilities in each one of those, it brings you to another page. And right there are resources for me as a teacher or as a leader that I can begin to use right away. Like here's deep dive recommendations. If you want to go into a book. Here's Here's some general articles that spell out what that strategy is about. And here's specifically actionable articles that I could read or watch a video on and begin to put into place tomorrow. And all that together is the form. And it's, it's again, I think it's transformatively different.
0: Yeah. So what with rubrics, traditional rubrics, we're using kind of a summative tool as a form.
1: And there is no numbers ratings with that. Thing.
0: Right. And that's huge because that's, that's what people look at is, am I a three, am I a four, what am I? we're using that summative tool in a formative way to say, this is what you could be doing, but you're only a three, right. you're only a two right now. You flip that tremendously and you capture evidence of, right? So within the nine pedagogical areas, can you talk about the evidence of and why you have that mindset on the form? The first way you're talking about two to three, sometimes on some of those other models, that'll be like
1: from once or twice per class to frequently per class. Like, what, what does that mean? How does that improve my teaching and learning? And so it creates defensiveness as soon as it's a two or three, because you might be thinking, no, 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 I'm a three. You just didn't see it that one day, right? And, and so we're this, where well, we don't even have to get into that. Just by talking about what we saw, if I'm seeing on, on any level, even a level that's like a basic level, which I'm not going to lie, that happens. We're sharing what we saw. And that's a strength. It might be a lower level of a strength compared to somebody else, but it's a strength. And when we can work from a strength, then we can go somewhere. If we're working from a deficit, it's much much harder to go somewhere. And so we're just capturing what we see. It it, and look, I see slightly different things than you, sure, but overall, generally, we're seeing the same things. And just by changing the framework with which we discuss it, there is an openness to growth, to risk taking that's not there otherwise.
0: Because I'm not getting evaluated. I'm simply, I'm I'm hearing from you as the observer. So if I'm a teacher right now, you're telling me, here are the things that I'm seeing in your classroom. And it's not it's not evaluative. It's not judgmental. It's here's what I'm noticing. And then it's up to me, and we'll get to the reflective conversation in a little bit to ask questions. So like, oh, you're, you're going to ask me, what would you do differently next time? Okay, well, here, I I can tell you some specific things that I could do differently, but having that evidence of, instead of I'm a two in this area and a three in this other indicator, and there's 76 indicators I'm trying to review in time for a post-observation conference, it's it's overwhelming. It's not, it's not effective.
1: Um, I just want to say also when those 20 minutes are done, because our observations are 20 minutes, I'm done. I don't have to go home and put anything together. Like it's just a reflective conversation the next day, and I just want to say because I know there's going to be some people out there that are a little skeptical. But you got to evaluate them, and I agree. Everyone has to be evaluated in every job. We have to make the retention decisions on, on on every single person. It doesn't have to be about my pedagogy when I'm in the classroom. And, and so we do evaluate. We evaluate professionalism. We evaluate planning and, and preparation. We evaluate uh, communication, collaboration, collegiality, and we evaluate growth mindset what, with a plan where we set you up to be proficient in growth mindset. And I, I just want to add this for those that might be skeptical about not evaluating your pedagogy. Every teacher that I've not renewed, if, if the teaching is not strong and It always manifests in oftentimes two or more of those other areas. So it doesn't prevent us from doing that. And I don't wanna focus on that, but just for those that are skeptical, I I just wanna point out it doesn't get in the way.
0: I wanna go back quickly to you talked about the toolbox, right? The, The different levels of supports. So with this idea of a traditional framework or a rubric is meant to show here's what success looks like in the next level there's interpretations of that. You had mentioned, well, I did that, just not when you were here right now. But having a list of resources external from a rubric, if you will, that provides a lot more guidance for me as a teacher. It provides a lot more different levels of support, different types of supports. And I love how that's part of the evaluation or part of the observation process, but it's not a an evaluation saying, here is the one thing you need to do differently or change from two to three times to frequently. It's here are a variety of supports for you.
1: Teachers appreciate the autonomy with that. And look, when we introduce the form, we just open it up and in a certain area when we go over the form the first time and we talk about it and we even show how potentially you can use it. And we just say, it's up to you. Do it or don't. It's up to you. Just showing it to you. And even that, that that, that gets them more. They, every week when you do training, there's people and they're, they're leaning into the form and they're looking real closely because we sit beside them. And you can just tell they're going to go in the toolbox that night and I'll see them in the hallway the next day. And I'll say, did you go into the toolbox last night? And they inevitably, inevitably sheepishly will say, yeah. And and cause they, but it's on their own and it's right there. I don't have to look it up. It also is really, really good though for administrators. It builds my own capacity and understanding in those nine areas of pedagogy, which better helps me to be able to help support my teacher's growth as well.
0: Yeah. And that's, we hear that from teachers all the time. I wish I was better supported during school? Well, support means a variety of things. Now I have concrete evidence of here's all these different supports, all these different ways that I'm able to provide that support to you. So I I love that part of it.
1: And we'll get more into that too, when we get into the part about offering suggestions.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about process for a little bit now. So we've dug into the form, what the form looks like. Um, we talked about this already, but what's typical for most evaluation processes is if I'm a if I'm a newer teacher or a I have an action plan a, an improvement plan, I might be observed three to five times per year. If I'm tenured, I might be observed once every three years or so. How does the TBO method differ from that?
1: One, if I'm going to observe you that infrequently, how, how am I going to be able to support you if we can't even remember the last visit? Right, that, that not where can anything build on each other? It can't, and so it. Every teacher, we observe equally, part time, full time. It doesn't matter. We, it's basically, we recommend a, a three to four week cycle. We recommend you strive for a three week cycle. Be knowing the way schools work, that keeps us on a four week cycle. And so they're twenty minutes. They're unannounced. I'm also going to say, the pre-observation conference. All that does, it's human nature that if I know I'm going to be observed, I'm going to put extra effort into it. It just is. I don't care if I have been rated teacher of the year, 10 years running, I'm still going to put, it's just, it's human nature. And so I'm not seeing authentic teaching. If I'm not seeing authentic teaching, if I'm just teaching so I can tick the 76 boxes or whatever, even if it's 24 boxes, it's not authentic. It's not authentic to that lesson. So how, how can it be meaningful? It's a dog and pony show. Basically, it's once every three to four weeks, it's 20 minutes, we just cycle through, we cycle through, we track it, we see them in the beginning, middle and end, we track when we on our tracking sheet, a B or an M or an E for beginning, middle or end. So we know, and we just keep going through over and over and over again, all year long until the next year. And so there's more. We don't offer suggestions until at least the beginning of the fourth time. There's exceptions for like new teachers or something super, super egregious. But that's the basic framework of the way the process works. Just the observation part, not the reflective conversation. But yeah, it's simple.
0: And you kind of glanced over this, but I think the idea of not providing suggestions until the fourth observations, that's a huge mindset change for a lot of people. Because again, so the traditional model, I go in three times, maybe so if the expectation is I provide suggestions. Teachers are waiting for, okay, tell me what I need to do. I've been working hard. I put in extra time, my extra due diligence to make sure lesson planning is fine. Just tell me what I need to do differently. But you just said, wait until the fourth observation because it, it, that builds trust, right? Because you have a better understanding of what typical practice is like for this teacher. And you're not just saying, I'm your observer. I'm your boss. I'm telling you what you need to do differently. Instead, you have these reflective conversations along the way
1: reflective conversations the next day all the time. And so look, what we're doing isn't working. The research we already shared isn't working. So if I'm going on an every three week cycle, so what's the, what's the fourth time that's nine weeks. If the trade-off is I get nine weeks of building trust, so you feel safe taking risks versus now when you'll be strategically compliant, people, because you're the boss, they'll be strategically compliant and and do what you say. But if I'm not owning it and I'm not choosing to go along with it on my own, my passion's not there and we're not going to see the same difference. So if I can wait, then that's going to make a big difference. I'm also going to say, how arrogant of me is it of me to come in after one time and say, oh, hey, here's what you ought to get better at. I. Like at the very, very beginning, the reason it became the fourth visit was completely by accident. I didn't want to give feedback at the very, very beginning my first year as an assistant principal because I was afraid, what if I tell you to get better at something you're really good at, but I just haven't seen it yet. Because even as much as we're seeing you, we're seeing you less than 1% of the time. And the other reason, if I'm being totally honest, was I was a little afraid. I wanted to be liked, and I was afraid if I did gave them advice, that would uh, that would ruin that. And a really, really interesting thing happened the third time through just a mass of the teachers started saying, Craig, okay, 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 but what can I get better at? And that I didn't know it was trust for years, but really that's what it was because we'd taken our time, demonstrated that this is what this is about. Trust developed. And then there was a willingness to embrace risk-taking and change.
0: I can't help but imagine now a culture where I'm observing and teachers are asking, okay, like how can I improve? Tell me things that I could do to get better. That's every administrator's dream instead of going in and knowing your post-observation conference is going to be, okay, I forget what happened because it's so stressful for me. Like you're, you're building trust, you're building relationships, you're building that school culture where people are engaged, where they're empowered.
1: You're changing culture and it changes culture like almost immediately. And I have a really good example related to what you're saying in observation. I was at an international school in Cambodia in May, and I was leaving on Friday afternoon with the school leaders, a big school. We walked out. Along the way, we came across three teachers at three different times, three teachers we had not observed that week. All three of them said basically the same thing, but they all had the same wistful tone. And they all said, basically, they said, oh, I thought you were going to observe me. It's like, where in the world do people say, no fair, I didn't get my turn being observed. And let me talk about why that happened. It happened because the teachers who had been observed and had had the reflective conversations that week, which is about a dozen of them, it was them talking about it to other teachers afterwards. That was it. And it changed the culture like that.
0: Another big difference is how feedback is provided. I read in the book, you, you suggest not sending feedback via email. Is that right? That's traditional practice. Tell, tell me more about that. So I'm
1: just going to say, I tr- in the book, I use the word feedback a lot. I'm really striving not to use that word anymore and talk about reflective conversations. And because what I've discovered in my work at schools, although feedback's almost a four letter word. And so I I, I strive to stay away from that word. And so you can't read tone in email. It's so bloody impersonal. And so instantly, no matter what I read, I'm going to think or worry something something bad. Uh, There's districts that I know where they just email feedback like two thirds of the time. It's the anti of building trust. It's the anti, how are we, it's about human, we're human beings in a human being to human being profession. And we can't even model it with our reflective conversations. Ah, give me a break.
0: Whenever I was observing, I would always, in in my own mind, I would justify sending feedback because I wanted the teacher to be prepared for our post-observation conference. So how, how does that, how does that work? If I'm a teacher then, and the expectation has been communicated to me saying we're going to, I'll be in your classroom for 20 minutes or so, and then we'll have a a reflective conversation the next day. Is there kind of anxiety in me of, of how did I do in this observation? How, how is that different from the teacher perspective?
1: So, I mean... Listen, the first day we come and do a training at school, or there are the teachers worried. Of course they are, especially when there's five of us coming in with the laptop all together and observing in their classroom. But as soon as they start to experience the reflective conversation, it changes. And does that mean the first timer through through to, especially if people have had traumatic experiences before, that there's not going to be some caution there with some teachers, of course. And it's going to vary depending on everyone's experience. But the reflective conversation is so dramatically different than than anything else. It just changes automatically. We can talk about that if you want.
0: Yeah, I'd love to. So you have a couple of of main questions, if you will, for the reflective uh, conversation. What are those questions? Can we go even back more than that? Because it's about trust.
1: And I want to, even before we get into that part, every single thing we do is designed to build trust. And so I want to start at the very beginning. The reflective conversations happen in the teacher's room, not in our space. And we always say whether you're 7, 17, or 37, getting called to the principal's office feels like getting called to the principal's office. If you get an email from me saying, hey, Eric, could you come on by? I want to talk to you about something. Like, don't tell me the first thought in your head isn't like, <gasps> what did I do it? And it's human nature, right? So we take that out. That takes that, that builds trust. Brene Brown talks about trust and she talks about vulnerability is not being a bad thing, but we have to lower vulnerability enough. So people feel safe taking risks. And she talks about it as a jar and it's putting a marble at a time into the jar. And I add to that, we have to be as leaders, extra careful about every single little thing we say, email, write next week's news, letter anything because any little thing that's misperceived and it's really the equivalent of knocking that jar off the floor. And so if we've been working hard at building trust, we might be able to find some of the marbles but we're going to lose some. They're going to go down the heater vent or get stuck under the couch or whatever and so everything that we're doing now starting with in the teacher's room that's a that's a trust marble. The next thing we do is when we get to the room we just find their prep period and we just go to their room. We just say, "Hey, is now a good time?" We think even just having that slight little courtesy of asking, 99.9% of the time they say yes, but that's a little trust marble in the jar. The next thing is we sit beside them, not across from them. Hierarchical power difference says if I sit across from you, that magnifies the difference. If I sit beside you, that minimizes the difference. As the father of twins who just turned 21 yesterday, I can tell you during some of those teenage years, getting them to talk was the proverbial pulling teeth. However, we'd go on a hike, one in front of the other, or we're driving in a car side by side. All of a sudden, they're much more willing to talk. We don't think it's that different with adults. Maybe not quite the same need for autonomy as teenagers, but the same thing. So we sit beside you. That's a trust marble in the jar. The next thing is we're totally transparent. Like you and I are both looking at the screens, looking at each other. That's the form. You're sitting right beside me. You see the form. I see the form. That's transparency. That's a marble on the jar. Now getting to your questions, we look at that as a handful of marbles in the jar. Instead of my talking first and telling, I'm asking and I'm listening and I'm valuing you. I'm actively just listening and valuing you. The first question is, what were you doing pedagogically speaking to help students learn? And we unpack that even more to build more trust. We just say, look, sometimes when we come in, I definitely want to hear about those 20 minutes, but you'll feel like, oh, the best part was right before you came or right after you left. Please talk about that too. And we feel like by talking about that, that's a little safety trust marble as well. When we do that, we type their answers out. We work on reframing them into pedagogical language. We share back what we captured, demonstrating that we're listening. And we ask, is there anything else? Oftentimes repeating what they said, we'll draw out more. The second question is, if you had the opportunity to reteach the lesson, what, if anything, might you have done differently? And we unpack that with the purpose of building trust too. We say, look, teaching is super, super hard. And when we nail a lesson, we want to celebrate it. I don't want you to feel like, because I'm the boss, you have to manufacture an answer. If you nailed it, say you nailed it. I've seen hundreds of lessons during the 20 minutes where I, I wouldn't recommend anything. And at the same time, we say, We know most of the time we tend to think, I wish I would have. And then we restate the question again. We capture their answers. And then we think this is a reverse marble, reverse trust marble. We don't ask, is there anything else? Because we think if we do that, that'll get the teacher worrying and thinking, oh gosh, what did you see that I should have done differently? So those are the two questions. And and if I'll just continue, the next thing we do after that, and it's not in the book. I don't know why I didn't put it in the book. I, I I have no good reason. We talk to them about the goal of trust-based observations. And we tell them this, this is the first time. If we feel like somebody needs to hear it again, we'll tell it the second time, the third time, the fourth time. But we say the goal of trust-based observations is for me and everyone else in the building who does observations to build enough trust with you and every other teacher in our building so that any one of us can come into your classroom, observe you, see you trying something new, And even though it's highly unlikely, have it be a complete and total disaster, a train wreck, yet you won't have that same panicked, oh my word, oh my word, oh my word, they're observing me and this is happening. You're actually not worried at all because you already know what's going to happen because you know it's all about trust. You know the next day when we come into your room, we're going to say, Eric, I love it you were taking a risk yesterday and we're going to high five or fist bump you. And we just say, because when we create those conditions, what's going to happen? you will persist in taking risks and so will every other teacher in our building and when that happens we will necessarily grow so we tell them that and then we just plow through the evidence of and then we share the form with them afterwards
0: and it's such a different conversation than what most observations are so what and this this comes out in the book and what you just said is innovation and risk taking and having this environment where teachers can try new things feel safe and comfortable trying new things and know that It's not necessarily going to be reflected on the feedback on the evaluation because it's part of it's part of the culture. The culture is we're going to try new things, we're going to fail fast, move forward together.
1: Isn't that what we want for our kids? I mean, if we're not modeling it with our observation, with our adults, like right now, if we were to, if there was a category on, on, I'm sure on those seventy six indicators, there's probably one on feedback to students. If we were to rate like what we view as like that and what we want students to be, and we were to rate teacher feed principal feedback to teachers under the same category it would be one it would be the worst it would be unacceptable like how can we not model what we want our teachers to be doing
0: yeah and that's that's come out a lot actually in conversations on the podcast this idea of what we expect our teachers to do with our students is not what we as leaders are doing to our teachers it's it's so it's so backwards at times, how we approach the adults versus what we expect from our adults to the students. And this is just a, another perfect example of that.
1: <laughs> I mean, you can tell, it gets my blood boiling. It's And, and look, so it doesn't have to be that way. We can change it, we can make it this. And we have to, otherwise we're hypocrites. And let's just call it what it is.
0: Yeah, that's right. So anything else you wanna talk about with TBO? What I wanna talk about next is what feedback you're getting from school leaders and from teachers. Now you, t- you talked about that a little bit. But anything else about the TBO process you want to share before we move to that next set of questions?
1: Yeah, just one more thing is is it's it's comprehensive, and and so, well, let's talk about offering suggestions. So when we do offer suggestions, first off, we ask permission to offer a suggestion, and again, that might sound strange, but it gives them the opportunity to say no. People sometimes will go, "Well, why?" But what if they say no? And all I can tell you is, in my career, I had one person say no. Uh, I like to joke that she was French because she was, but really the bigger issue is that she'd probably had traumatic experiences before and she wasn't ready. And so we waited and two or three months down the road, she was ready. So we ask permission. That again, allows them to engage in it, not be strategically compliant. But even then when we do, it's supported. And so when we support it, the, the main ways are one, like I said, we, we could dig into an article or two ahead of time. So then I'm prepared to go over that article with the teacher and then plan about how we could start to put it in their practice tomorrow. But another way that I think is really, really huge is because I'm in classes so much, I know who's best at what firsthand. And so then I might go up to one of my teachers and say, hey, Eric, we all know how good you are at descriptive progress feedback. I've got a teacher that could really benefit from your expertise. Would you be willing to work with them? No teacher ever says no to that, right? So, and then when am I seeing you again? Three or four weeks later. So I do everything exactly the same, but do I have a little bit keener eye towards that one area? Of course. And then that's where it's maybe a little bit of instructional coach working there. And We don't pile on with another activity, another area that we want to work on until we're where we want to be on that area. So that's one thing I want to share. The other thing is for each one of those nine areas of pedagogy, starting in year two of the program, we have a monthly professional development community where teachers have autonomy in choosing one of those and they create an annual goal about getting better in that pedagogy, real specific, smart annual goal. And so they work on that all year long with their, uh, with whoever's facilitating and we tap in again to our in-house experts to lead those. If we think about annual goals, like I, I, I guiltily admit that I've created annual goals with honest intentions, gotten an email from my principal in May saying, we're gonna go over your annual goals at your end of the year evaluation struggled to go find where my goals were. And, and like, luckily I'd made some incidental progress, but now you've got an annual goal. I'm providing monthly professional development on it, where we're building a new practice and talking about how it's going to help you go and just keep building that all year long. And we have another question that we start year two, And that is talking about your progress on your annual goal. So it keeps it front of mind too. So I just want to add that we we're supporting growth in in, uh, as a comprehensive a way as we possibly can.
0: Yeah. And to your point, if I'm an observer, I know the strengths of my people because I'm in the classroom so many times. One of the things that we hear from a lot of administrators is just how busy the profession is, how hard it is to be an administrator. Oftentimes, you know, everything falls back on me. And that is the case because you're the school leader. But why not have a, a distributed leadership team where you have these instructional leaders? You, know, you, you have wonderful teaching in the building anyway. Like leverage that. Use that. Teachers love to be leaders. So why not use that for your own benefit as well?
1: Well, And they're better at it than I am. So it'd be stupid for me to do it when they're better at it than I am. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So I'm curious, you've, again, been training people all over the world. What are administrators saying before? So you kind of have this idea of, here's what we're going to talk about, TBO, trust-based observations. I'm guessing there's some excitement from some, some maybe trepidation, some nervousness. When they get through the training with you, what's some feedback that you've heard from administrators?
1: So I'm going to say it's a super intensive week long training. It's all about practice by doing. It's a they during the week they say it's exhausting and invigorating. Honestly, week in and week out, we get it's the best training we've ever been we've ever had. It's the first time our whole team, our whole leadership team, is focused on the same thing. Uh, gosh, I just in the last months since. September, I've had three of our trained leaders. One of them wrote, this is the best thing in in my 25 years of education, like put it on social media. Another head teacher wrote, this is the best thing in my 30 years in education for teacher observation. And another one just last week wrote, this is the best thing in 50 years in education. And it's, I mean, I'm so gracious. And and I I also want to say, look, the people that are reaching out now, those are, those are the innovators, right? Those are the early adopters. Those are the ones that read it and are like, oh, this is what I've been waiting for. So I have a super eager audience. Now, if I had a a principal or two along the way that the head teacher said, yeah, you're coming along where they were a little more skeptical at first. Yeah, of course. But uh, I'd say in all but one case, everyone else is like, oh, I'm totally there. And even that one appreciated it. They just liked what they were doing as well and didn't want to give up their own way.
0: Yeah, I, I can see that. And I know you've heard from teachers as well. And you told the story about the three teachers, the th- three groups saying, I wish I had this training. What else are you hearing from teachers?
1: Oh, gosh, there was just a, a guy just posted last week from South Warren Schools uh, on somebody else's post about trust-based observations. And he just said, no, it's real. It's the best evaluation I've ever had, which I don't even think of it as evaluation observation. And he just said the rapport is amazing, that it's empowering. They We see tears of joy at the strengths being shared which is sad because that tells you how messed up the system is when we're just sharing the evidence of, and they're teary eyed because we're saying nice things about them that are genuine. They are saying it just feels like a collegial dialogue between two coworkers. Like there's not a level difference. They just, like I said, they're thinking, well, I am already thinking about what to get better at. They like, I don't want to bash the other models, but because everything's well intended. And I wouldn't hesitate to doubt that they have more educational expertise and knowledge than I do, but they'll just say, we like this way better.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. So Craig, what's one action or strategy you hope that every school leader listening today takes away and applies in their own building, their own district? What's one thing that's a big takeaway for you?
1: Be your kindest self. There are people out there that have to follow a system that requires evaluative rating and there's ways though that you can finesse it. There really, really are. Some schools that we've trained that are finessing it and it's working. And so be open-minded, be a risk-taker yourself, explore it, get the book, listen to this podcast. Think about whether this is a change that you want to make. If we know what we've been doing isn't working, and I guarantee you, you're not enjoying it either as a leader, then find a new way, explore it, reach out,
0: we'll help. And what's one celebration you want to share with the audience?
1: I mean, honestly, every week is a joy that I get to do this. But this next week, I have my first uh, time. I've been an invited keynote speaker at the National SAM Innovation Conference. So I'm pretty excited about having the opportunity to to do that uh, on that level.
0: Yeah, I can't wait to hear how that goes as well. Thanks. And if people want to get a hold of you, Craig, what's the best way of them doing that?
1: So you can go to the website, TrustBased.com dot com. Uh, you can email me, Craig at trustbase.com. Uh, I'm on t- Twitter at TrustBase Craig is my handle. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook and, and many of those principal groups. Just Craig Randall from Tacoma, Washington, if you're looking to find me. Just all those things are great ways to get a hold of me. The email and the website's probably the best though.
0: Yeah. And I'll include that in the show notes as well.
1: Thank so you.
0: Craig, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, the book, again, if you haven't read it, go read it because I wish I had this when I was an administrator it would have changed my approach, my mindset, the way that I the way that I support my teachers would have been completely different. So I appreciate you. I wish it was written eight years ago instead of a couple of years ago, but it's a, it's a fantastic resource for anybody out there. So thank you very much.
1: Thanks so much, Eric. I'm, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to get to talk and share about trust based observations.
0: If you haven't yet today, go thank an educator for all they're doing for us. This has been the employee experience in education podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to leave a review. Thanks and have a wonderful day.